This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to an amazing week right here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper Writer. We've got an action-packed day for you today, action-packed week. We've got tons of subjects to cover. I can't even begin to cover them all. And one day, everything I'd love to talk about that's happened just since Friday and over the weekend. But we only have so much time, and we've got a giant topic we're covering today, and that's water fluoridation. Fluoride, fluoridation. That's right. Yeah, water fluoridation. And uh, we're going to have on a guest here uh, to an expert on the topic to discuss uh, the bill being dis- that just passed out of a House committee that would allow water fluoridation to become uh, optional here in Kentucky. What's, why is that good? Why is it bad? Of course, a lot of people think of fluoride as something that helps your teeth out, helps your bones out. So we'll be asking the hard questions too as well. What's, what's this really mean? Isn't this helpful to us? Why is it not? So we'll be discussing that. But before we dig into it, um, I do want to encourage everybody listening to this uh, on or watching this, I guess, on Facebook YouTube, Twitter, and as such, to make sure you head over to theandrewshow.com. That's once again, theandrewshow.com to see where you can listen to the podcast version. So the video version only comes out on one day a week. This is this week's day, Monday, but you can catch an audio only version that is available Monday through Friday. So people listening on WZXI, people listening on Spotify, Apple, and as such, they hear a new show every single day. And like I said, there's a lot of big topics to cover. You're not going to want to miss a bit. You're not going to want to miss a thing. So make sure you head on over to theandrewshow.com and follow the show. But to start us off, I do want to discuss something uh, that I got in the mail. So I don't know, over the weekend, uh, I got this in the mail from Andy Barr, uh, Congressman. Now, longtime listeners of the show know I'm not the uh, necessarily biggest fan of one Andy Barr. Um, I've went through a litany of reasons why, but mainly just, you know, I think the guy um, is is very lukewarm at best, and we know he's trying to make a run for that Senate spot. But uh, this isn't as much attack on Andy Barr. Now, I'm going to talk about Andy Barr and what this said, but this is more of a discussion about our current political system, especially when it comes to our federal government. So this piece of mail I got, it was a nine, you know, standard, what is it, nine and a half by 11, whatever, standard piece of paper size. So those of you who work in the mail industry, this is a front and back standard paper size, uh, uh, glossy, um, high, uh, good, you know, quality stock paper that it's on. And that's important as we discuss this. So what it says here is at the front, it's got some horses. It's got, uh, his Facebook, his Instagram, his, uh, website that you can go to his government website, bar.house.gov. And it's got a little note from him that says it's an honor to represent Kentucky's sixth district in Congress. My staff and I work every day to deliver results and make 
that make a difference for our community and your family. In 2023, respond to more than 3,600 constituent letters and assisted over 3,000 Kentuckians. If you ever need assistance with a federal agency such as the VA, Social Security, or IRS, call us at 859-219-1366. We will do everything we can to get you the help you need. Uh, that's not so bad. Uh, it, and we'll dig into this, why I'm even bringing up this piece of mail. And then on the back, it says Congressman Andy Bard delivering results for our district. 200 bills sponsored or co-sponsored 3,633 constituent questions answered. And then it has his casework study where it talks about, uh, all the different people. It gives you numbers. And then it's got a quote here from a Don F in Jesmond County, that says, I'm 66 years old and I've become jaded with politicians in general. However, I hold Congressman Barr and his staff in high regard because of their willingness to become personally invested in the lives lives of their constituents. And then it has a contact my office number and a scan for my newsletter. So what's my problem with this piece of, of mail that I got? What's my issue here? So first, um, this is clearly attempting to be a constituent services mailer. And we know this because when we look at who paid for it, and this is my problem, and this isn't just any bar, this is all house reps I know engage in this, but when you look at who paid for it, this is what it says. It says this is a, and this is up in the corner there, a public document official business paid for by official funds authorized by the house of representatives. So who paid for this mailer? You did. I did. Everybody who pays taxes to the federal government did. They're paying for these mailers to go out. Those of you who've never run a campaign don't understand, but a congressional district is about 750,000 people, probably right around about 500,000 or so households. Assuming if this piece of mail went out to every house, and I don't know if you got one, let me know. Email me at info at theandrewshow.com if you got one. But this would go out to every household in the district. And uh, uh, assuming that it's being okayed because they're saying this is a constituent services thing, it better have went to every household in the district because if it only came to me because I'm a Republican voter or because I'm a a, a uh, I often vote in the general, I'm a four out of four general voter, well, now it's even more so of a piece of campaign material. So better went to every household. And if it went to every household, you're easily looking at this piece of mail costing the taxpayers three to $400,000. Easily, three to $400,000. Every single, con- assuming every single congressman got to send this out, that's a massive amount of money. A massive amount. I'm talking tens of millions of dollars being spent basically sending out campaign material. And you say, Andrew, this is constituent services. They got to let people know malarkey. (laughs) I was about to say something different. Malarkey. Look at that piece of mail. Look what I went through. A constituent service mailer would be basic, would be simple. I think it would actually kind of be useful to send out something that lists off, hey, Your local congressman's office can help you with this, 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 this. If you have issues with these departments in the federal government, please make sure you give your local congressman a call at this number. And here is his website. And here is his newsletter if you want to hear what's going on in Congress. If you said, okay, that's all it was, I actually wouldn't have as much of an issue. My issue here is he's got a a quote from a constituent talking about how much they hate politicians but love Andy Barr. They've got a thing at the top there saying that Andy Barr is delivering results for your district, for his congressional district. 
You, you, this is all over the place. This is definitely a piece of campaign. And so you go into, how do we replace these awful, horrible politicians? And whether you like any bar or not, doesn't matter. But you at least have to agree that there's awful Congress people that exist in our Congress somewhere, no matter your political viewpoints. And you may think we need to come together. We need to vote better and ring them in. In fact, on a post I made recently, somebody commented saying, this is what we get. This is what we vote for. This is, this is who gets the money. Well, it's not just that they're getting money from donors. They're getting money from us. The taxpayer just gave Andy Barr basically a two to 300,000. I, I don't know how many he sent it out to, but I'm going to guess they spent at least three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars on it. So almost a half a million dollar campaign contribution in order to help him look good in his district. How are you going to compete with that? You're going to go take on Andy Barr. You've already are down almost half a million dollars that he's gotten for free, not even from donors, but from you, the taxpayer. This is what needs there needs to be stricter rules. You can't send out something that's quite clearly a piece of election material like this. I mean, this is ridiculous. Andy Barr delivering results. Quote from constituents talking about how great he is. Going through, all th that's ridiculous. This is what we help you with. Here's our phone number. Here's the website if you need help on a basic card that's as cheap as you could get. That I'd be okay with. This, the most expensive probably mailer political type I will get in my mailbox being paid for by you, the taxpayer, is ridiculous. Coming up after this, though, we're going to have a discussion about water fluoridation in Kentucky. So stay with us. You're listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Politics. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Those of you watching the video format can see I am not alone. I'm joined by one Cindy Batson. Cindy, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Cindy's here with us because of House Bill 41. 141. 141. I'm good at this, I promise. House Bill 141 has recently gone through committee in the House, and there's been some chatter about it online. What the bill would seek to do, Cindy, correct me if I'm wrong, is to allow local districts, water districts, to have control over whether or not they want to add fluoride to the public drinking water. Is that accurate? It is the governing body of water producers, so it does bring the decision a little closer to home. Yes. Okay, so it's, it's a local decision right now. It's state-mandated. Fluoride has to be thrown in the water, right? That's correct. Okay. So, Cindy, let me ask you, why do you hate dental health? <laughs> I don't hate dental health. <laughs> but Listerine's good, isn't it? It's good for your teeth. Crest and Listerine and all that. I, I, I mouthwash sometimes. Well, I'm not one to comment on that. You're going to have to talk to your dental health professional about that. Okay. And it's interesting that you bring up mouthwash and topical fluoride applications. I assume that's what you mean. Um, by artificially elevating the levels of fluoride in drinking water, it isn't Crest or Listerine or any of those things that's being added to the water. So it's not like the fluoride I swish around in my mouth. It is not. 
So why is it that, you know, you, we have the uh, dentist association or what have you that's saying that fluoride needs to be in the water? What, why, where'd this idea come from that fluoride is helping our teeth that's in the water if it's not the same kind of fluoride that I rinse my mouth with? In the 1950s, um, water fluoridation began, and it was thought that it did decrease cavities in children up to 25%, and ultimately that's what's said time and time again today. But back in the 1950s, we didn't have fluoridated toothpaste. We didn't have access to dental care like we do now. It was a different time. It was the same time when there was still lead and paint and gasoline and asbestos and building materials, and physicians were telling you what their favorite cigarettes to smoke were. That was a different time that we were throwing fluoride into the water. I'll give you that. But what, I mean, does it harm anything? Is it, is it not good for the teeth at all? Does it harm people if they drink it? What's, what's the story here? Because the, you're not like a lobbyist or anything. You're just a citizen, yeah. a nurse, I'm a mother. A, I'm a registered nurse and I'm a mother. Who cares? Who cares? You're doing this because you're passionate about it. That's right. And that's actually how I came to the topic. I cared about what my child was getting. I thought she needed it. Um, but when I started to look into it, because she wasn't drinking tap water, um, she was getting her nourishment from me. And I learned that in 2006, there was a, all the studies were collected by the National Research Council. And they asked the EPA to reconsider their allowable limits of fluoride in drinking water. So you see the EPA only regulates fluoride in drinking water as a contaminant because too much of it's harmful. So right now, the EPA says four is the maximum contaminant level, two is the secondary maximum contaminant level. Because at the level of two, they have to notify like the health department and the public authorities because it's harmful. So I learned that the National Research Council was saying, hey, there are these other things that may be negatively impacted by consuming fluoride, even at levels in drinking water, such as thyroid health. They consider it endocrine disruptor. They're worried about bone health because fluoride moves into your cells where calcium should be. Um, obviously, the thing we hear the most about is um, dental fluorosis. Well, there's also skeletal fluorosis, which would look a lot like arthritis today. So I learned from that manual, which is about 600 pages, that the chemical that goes in our water is, all, is a silicofluoride. And I traced it back from our water department, and it's actually a byproduct of the phosphate fertilizer industry. Um, it's caught in a smokestack. Do you want to hear more? Yeah. So <laughs> this is... <laughs> I mean, you can't just stop there, okay? Yeah. So... Let me see if I understand. Now, first off, as you're giving that answer, you know what I thought to myself that? is that when I was in kindergarten, we would, you know, do the mouthwashy thing, but they always were really sure not to drink it. Right. They all which said, which I started realizing out. like, hold on, you actually don't drink the fluoride you use for your teeth. Right. And so I've started like, I started to be like, well, yeah, I just realized that as, as you're giving that answer that no, we don't drink it. Right, that's because right. Because it is harmful for us to drink. In, in large quantities. In large yes. quantities. So mm -hmm. what they've been doing is saying, well, we think it's okay to put this fluoride in the water because we think it's at a safe quantity. Mm -hmm. But the way that they're collecting this fluoride is not by, I don't know how Listerine and them do it, but it's not the same process. They're catching it out of fertilizer factories as a byproduct. Yes, sort of. So fertilizer is made from the earth 
So this is yeah. a phosphate fertilizer. Okay. Um, so they collect a big bunch of earth and okay. it goes onto a conveyor belt. They put sulfuric acid on it. Um, the vapor off of that is highly toxic. And so the EPA in the 40s started regulating that they catch it. And this comes from other places too. In the 40s, it was commonly found from Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America. Okay. Um, it's a byproduct also of aluminum smelting. Okay. So... Um, where ours had come from was um, the EPA said you can't uh, emit this into the atmosphere anymore because it's toxic. It kills things in up to a 40 mile radius. So they put a wet scrubbing mechanism on the top. It turns this vapor into a liquid. That liquid is taken to a cooling pool. Um, what's solid on it settles to the bottom and what is radioactive evaporates off and what is left is a liquid that gets trucked to our water departments. And that's how we artificially elevate the level of fluoride in our drinking water. Now this chemical is also very acidic, very corrosive. You can call your water department. It etches glass, it uh, eats away steel, it peels metal or peels paint off the walls. Uh, it's just, it's not a great product to have in your water department. Uh, I saw evidence myself at ate through brick in my water department. There was an overfill and it just ate right through the brick. The fluoride that they're adding mm -hmm. ate through the brick? Yeah, it's called hydrofluorosilicic acid if you'd like to look it up. It's about 23% and it's also known to be contaminated with other heavy metals from the earth's crust because of how I told you it just gets collected. So in 2014, Phyllis Mullinex did a study about the contaminants in this um, liquid. And she also tested sodium fluoride, which some smaller um, water departments still sifted in. Um, she found them to be incredibly high in aluminum. She found lead and arsenic, cadmium, manganese, all different kinds of heavy metals. And the this chemical, this slurry is dripped in after the water purification process so okay let's see if i get this right okay because i am but a simple man okay <laughs> so let's see if i got this so what we're doing is is we are collecting the vapors off phosphorus fertilizer production and then distilling that down into a liquid to get rid of the radioactive part well, it's distilled into a liquid because it can't be, the vapor cannot yeah, be allowed sure. to evaporate, to yeah, go into the atmosphere. Yeah. pushed into a liquid, yeah. and then the radioactive part is... Well, it's taken to a cooling pool, because there's sediments in there. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. There's sediment so in there. Off. The sediment goes to the bottom. Uh -huh. The radioactive stuff's meant to yeah, evaporate off. Yeah, cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm assuming. I, now I just think I've been lied to my whole life, so... And then um, because, but, because we think that it's this pharmaceutical grade, something that's good for you, that's good for your kids. And it's kind of shocking to learn that, you know, there are water professionals who are very concerned about being in the same building with it. And um, I've heard the dilution is the solution. So you put it in the water and it gets diluted. So you're only getting, you know, those small amounts. But public health right now is requiring that fluoride be added to your water to reach 0.7 to 1.2 parts per million and that's 0.7 to 1.2 milligrams per liter so as you consume water throughout the day anybody can get a different dose um, depending on how much water you drink depending on which water department serving a higher amount it's 
in violation to the five patient rights as far as I'm concerned because, um, and this is very important for everybody to know, fluoride does not treat water. It does nothing to make it better, cleaner, more potable, tastes better. Fluoride is added to water to treat people. So it's not, so it's added in, okay, so it's collected, they get rid of the radioactive bits, truck that to your water plant, get rid of the sediment too, right? Yes. Truck that to your water treatment plant. After your water's been distilled and purified, they then drip this back in. It sounds like they're mandated to drip it in almost at a rate that's real close to what the EPA maximum allows. The maximum is four. It's four, and they're dripping it in at... Anywhere between 0.7 and 1.2. 1.2. Okay, so it's not... Two's the secondary maximum contaminant level, so two is when they start to alert folks, yeah. And so when they say, look, it's... it's, you, You know, you dilute this down, it's fine. I mean, is there a certain level, a certain amount of water if you drink in a day that you start to have these negative effects? Because, you know, people think to themselves, well, I drink bottled water. Yeah, but you also, you know, go get sodas from a soda fountain at a restaurant. That's through your public water system. Uh, You get coffee made somewhere. That's through a public water system. If you're picking up coffee somewhere, if, if, you know, you're getting water at a restaurant, that's generally through it. you know, what are the negative side effects to this? But for you answer that question, we do it to take a quick break, but we're going to come back with Cindy here and she's going to tell us what issues we could be experiencing from this chemical byproduct, toxic waste that we have being forced into our water by mandate through the state. Uh, after this short break, you're listening to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you are back with the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Want to reach out to the show? Feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, might even read them on the air. We're back here with Cindy Batson. Cindy, uh, nurse, mother, caring, constructive, activist right on the fluoride issue advocate advocate clean water advocate clean water advocate something we should all be able to get behind before the break we were digging into our house bill uh house bill 141 41 i promise once again i'm good at this house bill 141 a bill to give option to the local governing bodies to make decisions on whether or not they want to put fluoride into their drinking water before the break we were talking about um, what, what is going into our water? Is this fluoride like you see in Listerine and Crest? I asked Cindy if she just hates dental health. She informed me that I was incorrect uh, in belief that this is Crest or something like that, that this is in fact a byproduct from phosphorus fertilizer that's being collected up and then dripped back into our water supply. And so Cindy, what is, you know, you're kind of an expert in this. Not only are you a medical expert, but also you've been studying this subject. Um, You said you got into it because of your kids. You're worried they were not getting enough fluoride. 13 years ago. 13 years ago. My oldest child, right. I asked her doctor, hey, should I be supplementing her with fluoride? Because I want her to have strong bones and healthy teeth. We all want that for our kids. Um, And I learned that it was very easy just to pick up over the counter and a supplement if I wanted it. But there were so many side effects on that that I decided to hold off and just do some research. Um, I did. And then it just kind of led into this. Because, yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? So we find out that this is it sounds bad and it sounds like it's 
really not doing much to improve our dental or bone health to begin with. Uh, but what is the negative side effects of this? So our our bill was filed for the first time in the house in 2018, and it was just very basic. Like it's been a, it's been a long fight. In let's the house let the local governments have more say over this because right now it's a mandate. I actually called and I I asked somebody um, close to the top, "Hey, who's the watchdog for this? Have you seen this? It was published in 2006. In 2015, they actually lowered the levels of fluoride in drinking water. That's considered." Um, acceptable or good so i was just told that there was no conversations to have because it was the law so in order to do this and in order to talk about it we needed to change that law so that's what we started doing um the bill was filed in 2018 and since then there have just been a flurry of studies published suggesting that there are negative consequences to consuming fluoride even at levels in drinking water it's commonly accepted that too much is bad for you. That's why in grade school, when they had you rinse, they had you spit. Yeah. They were very concerned about that. Well, you're not that. supposed to drink mouthwash either as right. an adult, too. So <laughs> as a kid, you had to spit it out. But you're also, right. for those of you, you're not supposed to drink that Listerine now. You're supposed to be spitting it back out. That's right. There's a warning on your toothpaste to not ingest. Um, so... But you drink it in your water. Yeah, so that's what I did. I just dug in. Um, you've got the NRC compilation, and then 2018, there was a study done that linked fluoride consumption from the mother while pregnant with hyperactivity behaviors in children born to that woman. Um, so that was a big one. Uh, of course, it was called junk science. It's nonsense, whatnot. And then in... So dr hold on. So the study said, just make sure we wrap this up here. Right. And people understand. So the study said that a pregnant woman drinking too much of this fluoride-added drinking water was creating hyperactivity issues with their child once born. Well, I'm glad you asked to clarify that because the 2018 study was actually done in a country where they do not fluoridate the water, oh. but they fluoridate salt and okay. milk. So they studied specifically women who had higher urinary fluoride concentrations versus okay. women who had none. And that's important because in 2019, um, there was a cohort study that was published that brought that back in. Um, and that's ultimately why the 2018 study, people just disregarded it because it wasn't water fluoridation. But then they studied... Um, so it was just fluoride and milk, though. And salt. And salt. Yeah. And but so they disregarded it because it's still fluoride. You're still ingesting is. it. Why mm -hmm. would you disregard that information? Right. And it was all about urinary fluoride concentrations in pregnant women. So when the cohort study was published, actually by the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, um, they took samples from women who were pregnant and lived in areas that had fluoridated water and women who did not live in fluoridated mm -hmm. water. So the first part of that study was they studied maternal uh, fluoride urinary concentrations to kind of compare and they found what you would find. The more you consumed, the higher the level was in your urine. So then they followed the children born to those women and they found that they had lower IQs at age four and five than the women who had no fluoride in their urine. And so it was published with the hope that there would be more NIH funded studies to address mm -hmm. this. And this was in 2019, so we're five years out. It was thought to be so controversial when it was published that there was an editor summary done. And so it's two physicians and 
you know, they're JAMA editors, and they're talking about the controversy of the study, whether or not they should have published it, but they thought that it was such a good study that they wanted to let people know. And during the, it's 12 minutes, if you get a chance to listen, um, ultimately, these two gentlemen recommended that pregnant women drink bottled water or filtered water. Um, they said it wasn't a particularly odious thing to do, but it is expensive to filter fluoride out of your water. You can only get it out with activated alumina, distillation, or reverse osmosis. And I, I mean, is buying bottled water for every pregnant woman the answer? Probably that's not the answer either. No. So, so the negative side effects here, we've got hyper uh, activity, mm-hmm. potentially. Is there any other side effects that have been linked to high fluoride concentration well you've got the decreased iq that's a pretty decreased big deal. iq mm-hmm. yeah okay um underactive thyroid because underactive thyroid fluoride is a halogen okay just like iodine so the the finding is that fluoride competes with iodine um for to, competes with iodine for your thyroid okay um There's even a study that's fairly recent that talks about the antibacterial nature of fluoride. That's actually one of the reasons they thought that it worked. It went into your mouth. It killed the bad bacteria that causes Mm -hmm. dental decay, and then you swallow and it's gone. Well, now they're finding that it probably kills the good bacteria in your gut that helps us metabolize carbohydrates, obesity. Oh, okay. Specifically. So those are some pretty serious things. I mean, as best as you can, and obviously I know you're on the other side, what are the benefits of fluoriding why is there actual do, do you and i know your bill's not saying you can't put fluoride not absolutely well, not it's, right. it's the bill you're pushing for here is not saying you can't put fluoride in water it's saying that if if your locales have that discussion and they decide not to put fluoride in the water they can have that discussion that's right but what would be the reasons why they would what, what are the benefits of putting fluoride in the, are there any tangible benefits that you've seen or the argument for adding it in there is singular that it decreases dental decay by 25 percent in fluoridated communities where it said that it decreases the expenditure on oral health for every dollar spent adding fluoride to the water they say 38 dollars is spent in the dentist chair but unfortunately that doesn't take into account these other consequences that we may be experiencing mm-hmm. um, nobody's going into you know, a kid's doctor's appointment and say, no, what's, you know, what's it cost to, to treat them for this thing? Because it's pretty nonspecific at this point. But if there's a risk there, then. Do you know when that study was done? That study that said for every dollar spent there, it saves 36. When was that study done? Sure. So most of the studies that are cited were done in the fifties and sixties. That's what I figured. Mm -hmm. So that would be the question is that, you know, obviously nowadays we, have you know we brush our teeth more often we uh uh, have mouthwash that's more of a common thing you know we see the dentist more often um you know as you You look at trends you should see your dentist absolutely so real quick we got to wrap this up how can people help uh support this legislation what can they do you can call your legislators. You can leave a message. You can ask for them to support House Bill 141. If they haven't already co-sponsored, you can ask them to do that. We've passed the state government committee, and we're hoping to get a floor vote soon, so we need to know that we can pass on the floor. We currently have 21 co-sponsors, and we had 16 yes votes in the committee. So this isn't an unpopular thing to do. Yeah, it seems bipartisan, too. Yes. 
Yeah, Which is one so of the far. few things that you can find bipartisan agreement Well, it on. should be bipartisan. Right. Clean water is for everyone. And Absolutely. fluoride might not be for everyone. So let's talk about it. And that's what this does. It just... It gives us the opportunity to make decisions for our community as new information becomes available. And there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to do that. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for joining me and discussing this important piece of information. I know I learned something. I hope you did too. Stay with us after this. We'll be digging into uh, a few other points, not with Cindy, but on uh, news around Kentucky. You're listening to Andrew Cooper writer show your source for Kentucky politics. And you're back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. I want to thank Miss Batson for coming on and talking to us about that very important subject. Um, you want to make sure you head out, uh, he make sure you head out, make sure you contact your legislators on that bill, House Bill 141, and make sure you're asking them to vote um, yes on that bill. Make sure it's moving forward to the floor. Uh, I definitely think having that local control over fluoriding your water should be something we look at. Moving now towards uh, our last story here. Over the weekend, Amy McGrath, who, you know, I think we all wish in Kentucky would just go away, or at least everybody with functioning brain cells that can hear her. In case you didn't know, she was a fighter pilot. Um, <laughs> and running for office will be her next mission. Uh, just be the one that she failed. Anyway, so um, so she tweeted this out here. She said, so she retweeted an Every Town article, which we already talked about Every Town's very dubious statistical uh, whatever behavior. It says, update, two teens have been charged in the shooting in the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. While there's no information on how they got the guns, Missouri has some of the weakest gun laws with no minimum age required to possess assault rifles. Possess. Now listen to this. No minimum age required to possess assault weapons. Need to be 16 to drive a car, 18 to register to vote, 21 to drink a beer, 21 to buy a package of cigarettes, but run around with a weapon that can kill dozens of people in less than a minute. Well, that's just fine. Okay, let's, let's deconstruct this argument here. First off, keep in mind they're saying possess. Not own, but possess. Because you can't buy a rifle if you're under the age of 18. Basically, your parents have to buy it for you and then gift it to you, okay? Now, practically speaking, before we go into all the things wrong with what Amy McGrath dumbly said, um, the reason why, practically, we can't even have this discussion about possessing uh, assault rifles um, and, and passing some law to say if you're under 18, you can't possess an assault rifle, because first... How do you legally define an assault rifle without at the same time making it illegal to possess any other number of rifles, okay? Now you say, Andrew, why would under 18 need to possess a rifle? Well, you city dwellers, let me tell you something. Um, in the state of Kentucky, as well as many states, you can hunt on your own with a rifle over the age of 15. You can hunt on your own small game with a rimfire rifle. When you're over the age of, I believe, 13 here in Kentucky, you can possess a rifle as long as you're with your parent hunting under that age, as long as you want to. Not to mention, you have youth shooting sports, you have youth uh, uh, skeet, you have youth uh, um, trap, 
you have youth uh, pistol, youth rifle. You you have tons of youth, like literally thousands of teenagers in Kentucky and thousands of kids under 18 compete in either youth shooting events or also hunt. So just saying you can't have and possess a gun, a rifle, if you're under the age of 18, well, and, and, and not only that, but how do you define that? This is the problem they don't talk about. How would you legally define an assault rifle? What, how it looks? Or if you said, okay, fine, you can't have a semi-automatic rifle. Okay, so I can have a semi-automatic handgun, but not a semi-automatic rifle. So first, you can't hunt with a modern sporting rifle like I do often. Uh, I hunt with an AR platform rifle all the time. It shoots a 308. It's an AR-10. Now, lefties don't want to know that that exists, but that does. And I hunt with it. Killed a deer in uh, this year, this last year, hunt, last hunting season with it. I don't want you to talk about that. Um, but how would you define it? You would say what? A semi-automatic that fires a rifle cartridge? Well, now you're getting rid of quite a lot of rifled guns. If you just say semi-automatic, so they can have a pistol. Well, the minute kids start using pistols, you're gonna say, okay, no kids can have semi-automatic guns. Well, now you're getting rid of every single shotgun. That's a semi-automatic shotgun. That is the most common skeet guns, a lot of, not a lot of trap guns, but a lot of skeet guns. A lot of sporting clay guns are semi-automatic. Also, every, most hunting shotguns that people use are either pump or semi. And this modern day, especially duck hunting, they're going to use semi, most of them. So, I mean, you can't functionally outlaw a assault rifles, whatever that means, because you can't define it without outlawing everything else and removing tons of teenagers from being able to access it. So that's why those laws don't exist, because two jack wagons decide to commit a heinous act doesn't mean that thousands, tens of thousands of kids no longer are allowed to hunt to compete, to do all these things. That's the opposite of freedom. That's, if anything, that's giving those uh, monsters what they want, what they, that's giving them a win. They wanted to deprive people of life and liberty, and so you're going to do it for them by changing the laws. But also, let's go into what she actually said. No minimum age required to possess assault weapons. You need to be 16 to drive a car. You know what she doesn't say? We didn't say drive a car. We said possess, right? And I'd hazard a guess to say, um, I'd hazard a guess to say, and honestly, I didn't look, but I'd hazard a guess to say that uh, there in Kansas City, there's probably some extra rules. And in Missouri, I would hazard a guess to say you're not allowed like you are here in Kentucky. You're not allowed to carry a gun if you're under the age of 18. Open carry. You can't uh, uh, carry a pistol right now. If you're under the age of 21 concealed, you can't open carry one. So you can't carry in public a rifle or a handgun in Kentucky until you're over 18. Possessing one, what are you talking? You're talking about it being in the trunk of your car? You're talking about it being, what do you mean by possess? On top of that, do you think that these monsters that went to this parade here, do you think that they would, if they found out it was illegal, for them to possess that gun, they would have suddenly not done it? No, of course not. That's stupid. That's a stupid assertion. But you know what's funny is she says you need to be 16 to drive a car. You actually don't. You need to be 16 to drive a car on public roads. You don't need to be 16 to drive a car on private roads, on your private property, the same way you would with 
guns. And you don't need to be over the age of 18 to buy a car. You can buy a car. The question is registration titling. You need to have a license, right? But if you're buying a car and driving around on your property, you don't need to be 18 to do that. There is less restrictions for you to buy and possess a vehicle than there is for guns under the age of 18. So she's wrong there. Be 21 to drink a beer. You don't actually need to be 21 to drink a beer in many states. You need to be 21 to buy beer. But with a parent nearby, you can drink a lot of times in a lot of these states as long as your uh, parent consents to it. So that's wrong. 21 to buy a pack of cigarettes, but run around with a weapon that can kill dozens of people in less than a minute. Well, that's just fine. And once again, too, we're talking about buying cigarettes. You, you can't buy those guns. So you're conflating a lot of things. You're conflating possession with purchase age. Now, I don't actually know if it's illegal for you to possess cigarettes if you're under 18 or under 21, but as hazard a guess to say that in and of, of itself is not illegal. I think much like a lot of things, it's about purchasing age, not possession age. There's actually very few laws about possession where you can do it at a certain age, but you can't do it at another age. There's very few. Alcohol may be one. But my point is this. She's comparing. She's not even comparing the same thing. She's not even being honest in her comparison. She's talking. She's conflating buying and possessing so much so that I actually talked to my I've, I read this tweet off to my wife, and I said, look what Amy McGrath tweeted out. And I showed it to her. And she goes, you don't have to be a minimum age to buy a gun in Missouri? And I said, no, 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 no. That's not what the tweet was saying. The tweet's talking about possessing a gun. Even under quick observation and quick hearing it, my wife herself confused possession with purchasing. And we started talking about it. She realized, oh yeah, Leo, my son, he possesses guns when we go hunting all the time. He goes and shoots all the time. He's 12. He's about to be old enough where he could go small game hunting on his own if he wanted to. So, I mean, that, that just, think about it. And that's what they're relying on. That's what she's doing. Every single argument for gun control, all these arguments over guns, always possess you having less than mental faculties where you are not able, to, they're relying on you to be unable to process the information and to operate off of a point of no critical thinking. Because the minute you think critically for a second, you realize more laws don't stop criminals. It was already illegal to murder. It was already illegal uh, to shoot somebody like they did. Possessing, passing more laws that are lesser crimes that they would break in order to lead to this larger crime does nothing. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining me. Have a great rest of your day. We'll see you back here tomorrow.